Segunda Show. December dates in 20 seconds or less. The 4th, we will be in St. Louis. The 5th, we will be in Indianapolis. The 6th through 9th, you can find us in Cincinnati. And on the 10th, we will be in Louisville. On the 23rd, we're coming back to Frederick, Maryland. And in January, on the 10th, we will be at the Irvine Improv. Also in January, but not put together yet, will be our return to Phoenix, Arizona, and also Las Vegas. All of the specifics of those dates can be found at mormoninthemethhead.com. She once made a set of her own teeth. I once made a girl at my house change out of her shorts into something more modest. (laughs) You're listening to Mormon and the Meth Head. If you put a Mormon and a meth head together, this is what they sound like. Aaron Woodall and just a radar fence. Listen to them talking to Mike. We can't start until I hear. Is this a girlfriend? It's not a girlfriend. Uh, this is the cringiest thing I ever did. I think about it all the time. I've tried to find the girl to apologize to for this moment. It was both me and Tabitha. We were newlyweds. I was a manager. Oh my god! Yeah, I was a manager at a at a Sabaros Pizza uh, at a at University Mall in Orem, Utah. And this girl worked with me and. Uh, she spent the night at our house one night just to we we liked her we would hang out with her sometimes and she was going to spend the night at our house one time and she got into these uh teeny tiny little shorts that she slept in and uh she looked great in them you know like yeah. if, if i could if you if you if you know Anne marie if anybody knows Anne marie that worked at sabaros <laughs> in like 2009 2010 let her know she looked fine and that we but the thing is it's like she we saw her in them and then immediately were uncomfortable for a bunch of different I mean we could get into all that stuff but we um just like lied to ourselves and we just made it all about um the spirit in our house like we want we we oh, God, you know yeah. with that 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 our we don't want in our house you know, the whatever. And so we like asked her, uh, to change into, uh, some sweatpants that Tabitha had or something. And she was like, okay. And then she felt super embarrassed. Yeah. And of course she did. But really all she did was like, uh, turn us on too much. And right. then we got right. uncomfortable and cause we don't know anything about sexuality or whatever. You know, I feel like Tabitha's probably jealous, Yeah. you know, and I am probably horny, and and then, but we don't admit that to ourselves. We just make it all about uh, gospel standards and what God wanted us to do. And so we asked her to change. We like comp. We like spoke about it amongst ourselves first. We were like, Jesus, what should we do? Christ. Was she what just gonna we- go to sleep in them? Yeah. Well, I mean, we were like hanging out and talking and stuff first. We were just oh. like all hanging out together. Uh, you know, like classic slumber party, but. Uh, Man, if I had been cooler back then, I would have yeah. just been trying to get a threesome happening. Uh, we were all clearly there was a lot of tension in that in that living room that oh, night. That's so interesting. But, the idea that 
But I w- just to say too, Tabitha also felt we it didn't take as m- very long. We felt guilty about this before we left Mormonism. Like we recognized how bad this was not too long afterwards. But she just disappeared, and uh, turned out we we the only connection we had was Sabaros, and when Sabaros went so bankrupt, uh, <laughs> we didn't. <laughs> We had no more tie to her, so we never. I like tried searching her on Facebook multiple times to see if we could, because my brother was friends with her too. I felt like anyway, I never could find her to apologize. I've always wanted to. Uh, did you and Tabitha realize that it was sexual tension that was making you uncomfortable, or just realize like, hey, we probably made her feel weird? Probably the latter. I don't think we ever talked to, about. Uh, maybe we did. I can't remember. I don't know. That's so interesting. Somewhere between those two. <sighs> yeah, that's pretty cringy. Right. Uh, so you guys like went into the bedroom and shut the door and had a little conference about it and then came out. Yeah. With like sweatpants in hand. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah. we left the sweatpants <laughs> in the bathroom for her. <laughs> what if we were like change in front of us? <laughs> you wore these these little tempting shorts. Oh God! I remember all of that fucking, uh, the spirit, the spirit of this. Ugh. I guess maybe we didn't. I don't know. I was married so quickly, but I, I, a lot of the reason I was married so quickly was because sex. So that you could have it. Yeah. So like I was surrounded by youth that couldn't have sex but i was married at 16 so like i was and i was having uh, so much sex we were fucking so much we went on an la youth mission trip where we all just slept on the floors of these gross like because we were like ministering in compton and shit we were uh and we would just stay in these churches that we had collaborated with and we're like sleeping under pews and stuff i remember just like jerking them off underneath one of these pews like there was no (sighs) (laughs) in a church uh there was no way we were making it two weeks without having sex no way was that how long the trip was yeah okay yeah of course yeah we were fucking all over the place on that trip and it was so sex is so much a part of life and i feel so much more tapped into humans in general now that I am having sex and that I am embracing it and experimenting with it, I feel so much more human. I feel like I get it. I get why we're here. Oh, yeah. this is it. <laughs> this this is why. Oh, there's so much to do with sex to explore. You learn so much about yourself and about other people. It's uh, wonderful. It's magical. But um, I'm not, and I'm not going to put this just on religion. I think America in general is weird about sex and that it, they keep it really secret from kids that, and they, that it's, it's in America. It's just something so dirty. Sex is always so dirty. And yeah. it's this thing you got to sneak off to like do overcome that. And so I'm trying to raise my kids with an, an honest, understanding of what sex is and an acceptance of it so that they don't have to then overcome the shame part because i wasn't even raised religious and my parents were sexual beings and i knew they had sex and stuff but still like so much of society's 
weirdness about it and them covering up my eyes when it came on movies. And I guess like being open and honest with your kids about sex feels like, am I, is it creepy for me to, you know, like I find myself, uh, the conversations are hard to have and stuff like that. So it's, yeah, man, I'm wondering, like, am I giving my kids something new to overcome? Yeah. Like he'll have to overcome overcome how weirdly sexual his parents were. Yeah. Why why did they talk to me so much about (laughs) sex? Jeez. But I think, and I've talked a lot to you about how weird Provo, Utah is. And it's because no one, no one there knows that they're horny. No one has any idea that that's what it is. There's just, there's just this vague rage bubbling (laughs) beneath everything. Everything is just so big and great and happy. And so like everyone has psychotic smiles on their face at all times. Oh yeah. Gosh, I love ultimate Frisbee. But it's just that that, uh, that dude's never come before. He's never come. He Do you needs think to. there are Mormons that are not jerking off? I just, yeah, I believe there are Mormons that are not jerking off. I believe that there are people that don't need to jerk off. You know, uh, yeah, so sure, you, you some of those Mormons are the minority, though, right? Yeah, I think most people are jerking off. Um. This would be a great survey to conduct, and, and I would love to do some research at BYU. I love talking to all your ex-mo friends w- because they're all like, "Yeah, we were fucking." Like they're all just like, "Yeah, we were jerking off. We just didn't tell anybody." Like, uh, uh. I want to do a full-on survey at BYU though, and and uh, and find out. Like, let's let's ask people how. Let's get real. Let's see how often let's talk about it and then at the end of the survey i'll be like and i'm telling all y'all's bishops you dumb (laughs) bitches y'all are all getting kicked out your parents are gonna get called you're all in trouble all of you oh is that part of the honor code oh yeah yeah man i had to go to those 12-step meetings just for jerking off for for looking at pornography we talked about those yet? There were in Provo. There were two, there were recovery programs that did the same twelve steps uh, that that drug addicts do, uh, but for Brazzers. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, the same the same twelve steps that that heroin junkies have to work. But for teamskeet.com. <laughs> oh, man. My fearless moral inventory is just a list of like. www. <laughs> Milfhunter.com. No. Fearless moral inventory. Whoa, you know the lingo. I remember that one, man. Well, I'm fearless moral inventory is probably my favorite one because I love guilt so much. I love feeling oh a list of things that I did wrong. Okay, yeah, let's just sit and obsess over this. It's a list of everything. That's why I'm still uh, confessing the things that I feel bad about. 
Anne Marie and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I love holding on to that shit. Do you think you love wallowing in it or you love that it feels like you'll get free from it if you talk about it enough? I love both. I think I've, I've gotten better at not wallowing, but I was a wallower. Oh, did I love to wallow? Did I love to wallow? And I have those tendencies still, but I also like getting things off my chest. I do think it feels better when you tell everyone the, something that you yeah. hate about yourself. I think because part of the shame or the guilt or the embarrassment, uh, you you kill it by telling everyone because it's like, well, now you have less power because it, that's the Gambino thing that I talked about in that fight episode. Yeah, you tell everyone, then nobody can tell your secrets. You already told everyone. It doesn't have as much power. What was your favorite step? I was going to tell my secret. Your secret? Mm-hmm. Are you Sorry. about to tell your 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 truth? Yeah, I guess it's not a secret, but it's a it's a podcast episode I've been avoiding. Um, and people have we've gotten fans that have reached out and asked because I've alluded to it a couple times, and I guess we've just come to a point where I feel like it's time to have this conversation. Damn, uh, let's do it then. My name is Jessa, and I'm not an addict. Hi, Jessa. All right, here. Here's the deal. Uh, I get, I'm going to tell my addiction story and my recovery story. And I'm going to explain why this is a hard podcast for me to record. Uh, I have shared before that my experience with addiction was a little bit different. I didn't. I never felt like I was using against my will. I haven't had that experience with really anything. I decided I wanted to quit smoking. I, I said when my last cigarette was going to be, and it was my last cigarette, despite all of our Mormon and the meth head pictures. I don't smoke. Um, I, Were you ever tempted? To, you said, this is my last I cigarette? I said, this is my last cigarette, and that's it. And after that, I referred to myself as a non-smoker. I didn't make a big dramatic. That's how white people fail, is because they make a big... That's I'm, how white people I'm, fail? This is, that's why people oh, fail. Uh, it's There's also, lots of reasons that yeah. white people fail. Uh, I'm... I just quit smoking and then you make a big deal and you're like, use it as an excuse to be a bitch and everything else. And it's like, well, you're going to fail. I just smoked my last cigarette and I was like, that's it. You know, I, I said 30 days out that it, I will smoke my last cigarette on July 17th. And um, every cigarette from then until July 17th sucked, which was helpful. I couldn't get a good one. And I have a picture of the last one I smoked and I just didn't after that. But I had in my head, like if I smoke one, I'll probably end up smoking again. So I never lied to myself and magical thinking and thought like, oh, I can smoke. Uh, I take, take a drag. You know, I just didn't do any of that. But I just didn't make a big deal out of it. I just stopped smoking. I smoked for about 10 years. I loved smoking. I loved it. I loved meth. I drank pretty heavily. I had had a little Coke stint um, in, t- in my twenties, I drank and smoked pot when I was a teenager, but then I got pregnant and was a Jesus freak for a while. So I didn't do anything. Then I, when I backslid, I smoked weed for a little bit and didn't like the way it made me feel. So I stopped doing that. I did Coke for a few months and I didn't like the way that Coke, I was off the rails, but I didn't like the way that Coke makes you like desperate to do more Coke. I didn't like that Jones feeling. So I quit doing Coke and then I drank like crazy, but I really drank like crazy because I thought I couldn't get on stage and do comedy 
if I wasn't drunk and I was doing a, a lot of comedy. And then uh, I did like being drunk. I liked being drunk back then. I was the worst to be around, I think, drunk because I just wanted to talk about how drunk I was. I was also 21. And when I did meth for the first time, the description I think I did on Burtcast was that it felt like for the very first time, and I was already diagnosed ADHD and I'd already done like taken Ritalin and shit and sold it. And like I'd been prescribed it was, it felt like the world was vibrating at my frequency finally, or I was like, I had synced up with earth finally. And I only cared about meth after that. I never drank again. I never smoked pot. I did club drugs that were like meth adjacent, like ketamine, GHB, uh, uh, ecstasy, whatever things that were meth ish uh-huh. or, or, you know, lined up with that. Uh, any psychedelics. Um, but I wasn't what they call a dumpster. I wasn't someone that would do anything on the table just to escape. If I was out of meth, I would just suffer. They through. call that a dumpster. They call that a dumpster. They'll just, you can dump anything in it. They'll do any, anything. Huh? Okay. So I was not that I wouldn't do I wouldn't drink because that's a downer and I'm trying to go up. So if I was out of meth, I would just suffer through being out of meth. I wouldn't do something else. People did heroin in front of me and I was like, no thanks. That's a life sentence. People did crack in front of me. I was like, y'all look ridiculous. No thanks. And um, I never didn't want to do meth. There, I, there was never once an occasion where I was high on meth and wishing I had my old life. Every, a lot of people were doing that. Uh, my experience on meth was very different than the experience that everyone around me was having because most people on meth wished that they could go back to their old life. They felt chained to this substance. I felt chained to it in that if I didn't have meth, I was going to fall asleep. And it's a sleep that you know you can't escape from. But I accepted all the awful things that happened as this is part of the lifestyle I've chosen. And I never, I didn't regret any of it when I was in it. I never felt desperate to quit. I had zero desire to quit. The day that it occurred to me that maybe I'll quit doing meth for the very first time was the day that I never did meth again. Hmm. I had gone out to my dad's house for a couple weeks and had uh, that was the longest I'd been sober in over five years. And during that time, there were some thoughts that I hadn't had the whole time, which was like, wow, I'm kind of smart without meth, or I'm still funny without meth. Because these were qualities I developed while on meth, and I attributed them to meth. And so this is the first time that I kind of started to put things together, like maybe I don't need meth. And then I immediately dismissed that and was like, yeah, no thanks. I had intentions of doing meth for the rest of my life and was fine with it. Um, People around me would go to rehab or detox sometimes and I would mock them and just be like, give me your drugs. You're wasting them with your your back and forth bullshit. Uh... Yeah, I want you to be either hot or cold. If you go to rehab, I will spew you out of my, my mouth. mouth. I do not want these lukewarm tweakers. <laughs> so um, I leave Portland because I'm leaving a bad relationship. I need to get away from this bad relationship. Before I leave Portland, I make arrangements for people to send me meth. I'm on the, I know I've shared this before, but I'm on the airplane and I... R- 
just play the tape for it a little bit. And I'm like, uh, I'm just going to get ripped off. These tweakers are never going to send me the meth. I'm going to Western Union them money because before Venmo and they're going to take it. And if they do send me the drugs, I'm just going to tweak in Delaware by myself and I'm going to have to hide it and whatever. I'll just quit. That was that was the moment that I quit doing meth. I get to Delaware and I have to go through meth withdrawal, which is just like it was I uh, six weeks before my body had leveled out is that the sleep that you can't escape from sleep that you can't escape from i had just gotten uh oral surgery and had only done had already kind of started to come down because i only got to do meth once in the last week which was nothing i did meth every single day for years and then in this short span of time because i did the two weeks with my dad for christmas time i came home for two weeks and the relationship was bad and I was like, man, I'm out of here. And and then went and got the oral surgery, which took a week of healing and then was back on an airplane. So in that month, I'd only been high for like two weeks out of that month. And so I was already kind of starting to come down. But yeah, it's involuntary sleep, nightmares, a lot of like twitching muscles, a lot of your hormones and stuff having to regulate brain chemicals. For me, it was really not bad. Um, tons of sleep. Tons of sleep to where the kind of sleep where your brain doesn't want to sleep anymore, but your body is still sleeping or vice versa. So you're just like, like that sleep gross. paralysis. No, just like uh, too much sleep, too much sleep. I don't know how to yeah, describe I don't know it. what that's like. I know I, I've, <laughs> I'm realizing that there's no way to describe this to you. I feel like I felt it at other times in my life, but okay. too much sleep. Just I would be up. Uh, also, there was a lot of weird physical symptoms. I thought I had uh, diabetes, um, a lot of blood sugar stuff. And anyway, just my body just trying to find equilibrium again after being on all these substances. Also, you don't get sick on meth. I never had one cold or flu the entire time I was on meth. So oh, hell yeah. I have paid dearly for that. Yeah, people keep they airborne before they go on trips. A no, little, I do miss I meth. do miss being able to do uh, some meth and just get rid of whatever cold or flu. Anyway, um. I get to Delaware and my dad is in recovery. My dad is in 12 steps and he is amazing. He's amazing at helping me in early recovery. He was amazing at letting me come to him. And I, it was just so resolved. It was just so resolved for me. This was my first try and I didn't, I had zero desire to use zero. And you really had never, ever, ever tried to quit no. in the six years. Nope. I would occasionally, like if I saw my mom, like I would see my mom every once in a while and I would downplay how much I was using just to avoid annoying conversations. And there was one time where something, the first time something extremely violent happened in front of me, uh, me and my platonic life partner at the time, like went up to Spokane and, and hid out for a couple of weeks without drugs. This was real early in using uh, just because it was trauma, it was a mm -hmm. uh, I had just I had cleaned up buckets of one of my best friend's blood, and I just uh, needed oh, a minute. He spilled his blood buckets. He spilled his. Yeah, it's um, very nice of you to help him. Uh, in that, I never week. saw him again. Yeah, and then, <gasps> um, and then one other time, t uh, boyfriend that uh, is no longer with us went. We went to his parents' house to try to sleep it off for a minute, but I also th we weren't seriously going to quit. Um, I never, yeah, I never told my parents I was going to quit. 
I just never wanted to quit. I had no, there was never, no matter how hard things got, I never, it was never less appealing. And I'm talking awful things happen. Awful. Uh, getting stuck with nowhere to go that night and being out on a, on a bus station bench and some guy at a gas station just being like, you need a place to stay tonight and being like, yeah, because I have nowhere to go. Which that didn't happen to me a lot because I was so interesting. So people kept me around. But every once in a while, I would get lost in the shuffle and I had no cell phone and, and no, no money, zero money. And I went back with this guy and I, I got caught in a couple of those kind of situations with strangers where I had to like, was pretty sure I was going to get tied up, raped and murdered and uh, would have to sneak out while they were asleep and had to do gross things to survive. And I had a lot of that. And not, never once was I like mainstream society is better than this i never thought that i thought i would rather live in exciting real world this feels real to me this feels uh everything in the real world quote unquote real world nine to five eking out your existence living someone else's uh version of what you should be living like that all was a nightmare to me i'd way rather be living this life because it was uh exciting i guess it just was like it resonated so i get to delaware and i just have no i just have no desire to use and i thought i would drink again i thought one day i'll drink but i'm not going to drink while i'm coming down off of meth because even at that point i was like coming down off of meth is hard and adding alcohol which is a depressant will just make this feel worse and that's how my brain works which is not really addict thinking addict thinking would be like you took the alcohol or you took the meth away i need something 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 and as someone who's like tuned into other people's energy uh if i'm in the room with an addict i can feel that vacuum like i can feel that vacuum and and uh uh i never had that and i could feel it around and i would hear people talk okay so so you started going to meetings though my dad um here's what did happen. I get clean and the crippling social anxiety kicks in. And I was always someone so outgoing. That was my number one personality trait was extrovert. Like so outgoing. You could put me anywhere and I'd become friends with everyone in the room. And I just woke up my first day clean and was the opposite of that and was terrified. And a lot of that was like self-doubt I had a lot of issues because this relationship was so bad and I allowed myself to be treated so bad that I had a lot of self-doubt. This short relationship had a profound effect on my self-esteem when I first got clean. And so I didn't trust myself. And I felt like if I allowed that relationship to happen, if I believed that that person was supposed to be uh, in my life and they just hurt me, what else was I wrong about? And this was a huge loss of identity for me because up until the last few months of using and this relationship, falling in love with someone who was, I didn't, I didn't fall in love. I believed the aliens told me I was going to spend time with this person. I had a project that was important and that we were going to be together. And then he was just awful to me. And I was like, uh okay it's all bullshit then so kind of similar to your yeah your um so i didn't trust myself and so I'm, my alien was named jesus yeah yeah um i didn't trust myself so when i got sober i wrote it all off as drug bullshit and as a result i became this other version of jessa who i'm still waking up from 
but this other version of Jessa where I just pushed this monster, what I thought was a monster into a cage. But I have always been someone who just goes and experiences life and I'll deal with the consequences later. I'm here for the experience and I'll deal with the consequences. I'm someone who can assess risk very fast. And I'm someone who just says yes to most things. And I wasn't that person. I was very afraid. I was suddenly looking at what everyone else was doing and was like, okay, I can do that. I'll do what everyone else is doing. I stopped doing things that made sense to me and tried to check all the boxes that society wants you to check. And it was, uh, it manifested as social anxiety too, because I didn't, I didn't, I had like low self-esteem and I was afraid I was going to say the wrong thing. And I was very, I'm always awkward and, and, uh, weird now, but I, um, I felt very alone, I guess. But the thing, my experience with the recovery was everything was a huge, my family hadn't seen me in years. Everything was a huge accomplishment. I, I had the privilege of my parents being there to help me with things because this was my one chance. They hadn't wasted uh, $50,000 on rehabs and shit for me. So everything was just, everything was just an accomplishment. My dad took me to um, an AA meeting and I hated it. I hated it. I Someone said, my name is Jude. Everyone said, hey, Jude. I almost pissed myself laughing. Uh, mm -hmm. Then I felt very disrespectful because these were all like people who had their shit together. Like I'd been in the criminal underbelly of the meth world, you know? Um, then he took me to an NA meeting. So before this, I thought, I'm going to drink. I'll drink at some point. You know what I mean? I didn't think I'll be sober forever. I just thought I will stop doing meth right now. Okay. And I think I might even thought I'll eventually do meth again. And then um, I remember going to a bar with my dad because he played pool. And he's like, is this tempting for you? And I thought, I uh, no, if I wanted to drink, I would drink. I just don't want to drink. And then I got to an NA meeting and the guy who was sharing was like, my fucking PO is like being a little bitch. And I was, I felt so at home. <laughs> I felt like I could be myself in this environment because I, these are the people I've been talking to for five years, you know? And so for a social, for kind of a, 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 a social, uh, an environment to be a social person while transitioning into society, it was amazing. It was exactly where I needed to be. And I immediately noticed differences between me and ever like most of the other people in there. And I thought, uh, some of these people are working so hard to be sober. Like they're fighting for their lives. And I thought, if I wanted to use, I would just get high. I don't think I have this in me. I think if I wanted to get high, I would just get high. I wouldn't be in here fighting for my life. Why not? A man told me right before I got addicted to meth, I was obsessing over something dumb I did when I was drunk. And I was driving on a road trip with another comic. And he said, uh, you're going to give yourself an ulcer. And I wasn't even telling him what I was obsessing over. He could just see it on my face. And he said, you need to learn to either do what you're okay with or get okay with what you do, which changed my life in that moment. This is one of these uh, 
pivotal moments in my life. And I spent the next few years mostly just doing the second part. I became proficient at accepting what it was I wanted to do. But I just don't think, I don't think I'm extremely disciplined as a person. I think I am good at convincing myself that I want things and then executing things that I want. You know what I mean? Like I said, I would smoke my last cigarette on July 17th. And then I spent that whole next month, Jessa Reed guide to winning uh, my mind into a non-smoker. a non-smoker. So I did the pros and the con. I just, I, and I stacked all the things to where by the time I actually smoked the last cigarette, that decision was fully made with my entire being. And I think a lot of people, I get people all the time that ask me like, what do I do? My sister's addicted. And I say, let them finish. I don't know what, um, if you're trying to quit drugs because you just don't want to deal with the consequences, then you need to do the internal work within you. And this doesn't really apply to opiates as far as I'm concerned, because I think that there's a whole different thread of addiction in there with opiates. I think they're more insidious than other addictions, but let's say you're addicted to alcohol and you want to stop drinking because it's costing you things, but why are you drinking? What do you like about drinking? Address why you want to drink. Like really work this shit out before you just try to quit the substance. To me, makes sense. Right. And get done. You know, I think a lot of people try to quit things because they get a couple consequences or because other people expect them to get done or whatever. It ran its course. I did math till I was bored. And that's why I quit. I was bored. And I kind of quit because I was on an airplane, but I got on the airplane in the first place because I was bored. I was bored with this life. I did it. I did ran its entire course. I tried it every which way. I, I, I got what I came for and I was done. And uh, I just don't, I, I, I know people who've had their kids taken and stuff. And I think, yeah, if, if I was two years into my addiction and you took my kids, which I knew that would come anyway, which is why I left her with someone else. But uh, if I got locked up and put in the system, would I quit? No, not before I was done. If I still wanted to do math, I would do math. There's nothing you could do that would stop me. I would just get better and more cunning at finding ways to do it. Do you think anybody stops before they're done? Yeah. Yeah, but like, so, uh, so I- Yes, I do think that 12 Steps has a ton of people who still have the desire to use who manage to... Uh, who manage that addiction, who, who find recovery through the program yeah. with, while still having the desire to use. I don't know if they are stronger than me or a different brand of something than me. I can tell you that I have never... Um, they talk about things in recovery where um, you have things called reservations. It's a part of you that wants to use. And so it starts like building a case for, uh, you know, if, if someone dies, then I'm going to have to use, or my boyfriend breaks up with me that I'm going to have to use, or they, they hold on to a person in their life who they say, like, they just need this person in their life because I love him, but it's actually a reservation. They're just, they know this person's going to lead them to use again. So it's like their excuse or whatever. Um, yeah. They also talk about uh, another reservation is like, uh, pointing out why you don't relate to these people. 
looking for the differences, looking for why you're unique. And I thought, well, that makes sense. Like your disease is just like, you're not like these people. Yeah. And I thought I shot meth in my neck. I'm probably an addict. It doesn't matter that I did. I can't relate to this desperation thing because I do have a short attention span. So where most people probably have a long enough attention span to continue a drug addiction for more than five years, I that's just a weird Jessaism. But I absolutely have a disease in the background doing push-ups right now that's trying to convince me that I'm different from everyone else. And so I thought, what am I going to get too sober? You know, is this going to hurt me somehow doing this, doing these steps and, and working this program? Absolutely not. So I'm just going to do it. Yeah. And do you think, how long did you do it for? How long did you go to meetings? Uh, for three years, recovery was my entire life. I did service where I got my steps done in six months. I had sponsees. I, uh, a sponsor. I, do you call, oh, spot. Oh, okay. So you have a sponsor and then you sponsor other people. Oh, so they're okay, your sponsees. Good. I thought you did I some, made some weird, cute nickname no, for sponsors. Yuck. And I almost threw up a little bit. Yeah. That's appropriate. You're my sponsee. Yuck. I did service work. I, uh, resonated with like hospitals and institutions and taking meetings into hospitals and institutions. Cause that was also, uh, was my favorite ministry. Did you like doing it? while you I did? did. I loved it. And did you make friends at meetings and stuff. Yeah. One thing I know about myself, one of my, uh, stronger character defects, that's not as strong now, but I'm self-righteous and I have to constantly remind myself where I came from. And I, in Christianity and this have a tendency, had a tendency to uh, just, I spent an exorbitant amount of time pointing out what was wrong with other people and why I was, it was all just extreme insecurity on my part. Just being like, uh, they're not doing like I go in, I do the steps because a lot of people just like flail on their steps for years, you know, and I just went in and got the steps done. So now I can just like stand up here and judge everyone that hasn't gotten their steps done. I'm judging people who are playing poker because that's gambling. I'm judging this. I'm judging this. So it was a, a gross. It didn't bring out the best in me huh. at all. I It was nice to have the fellowship. I spent a lot of time talking shit. Do you think that there were any skills or insights or things that you gained from working the steps and going to meetings that you would not have had you had you not gone? I think every person in the world should work the steps. I think the steps are every addict such, in the world or every, every person? person in the world. I thought that when I was doing it, it the steps themselves resonate heavily with my own spiritual beliefs. But I think uh, to go through your life in these steps and just kind of clean house and just get all this stuff. I learned things and I was already very self-aware and I already had done a lot of work on myself on drugs, which is not the normal experience that people have on meth. But for me, it was healing a lot of broken pieces. But the fourth step, I did a very intense fourth step where I went through a lot of stuff from my childhood. And then having that like fifth step, I think it was fifth step experience with the people that I talked to about it. And then finding out like a lot of the perception stuff that wasn't totally true and being able to make amends to people. And I sent checks to people for uh, stuff that I stole from them and money that I borrowed that I never paid back. And uh, just really, and then I just closed that chapter of my life. Like everything up until the age of 29, I was able to just put where it belonged, organize it and close the chapter and start new. And I think that everyone could benefit from doing that at different phases in their lives. I absolutely believe everyone should do the steps. 
there it's so little of it is about addiction and it's just about mm-hmm. like a that moral inventory and stuff like that's yeah so i had to write all these checks to like babes.net uh <laughs> because i wasn't subscribing it's very weird i then had to i had to subscribe to all these porn sites to make restitution and uh <laughs> Um, okay. After three years, I started working a lot and wasn't going to as many meetings and it started to cause conflict in some of like my tighter recovery relationships because we all got clean at the same time. You know, we all judge people that start to fall away because you just think everyone's going to relapse because you watch people relapse. You watch people go out and die. You know, it's very scary. When they, I remember from my meetings, uh, <laughs> they, but there's, it's, it's, it's an endless source of, uh, of humor for me, and, but also pain. Like it's, it's funny, but it was, it was so weird, um, and destructive in a lot of ways and not helpful. I really don't think anybody in Provo should go to these meetings. Don't ever, don't ever let anyone make you do it. But I think that there were, similar things said at my meetings that were said at yours. And I heard people say all the time that you think you're doing okay and you'll stop coming to meetings and then you'll slip up. You'll look at porn again, you'll jerk off and then you won't ever, you'll be back. You'll, you know, you'll crumble all the way down. You have to start back over and blah, blah, blah. Like people would come and share their story about how they did exactly that. Yeah. You know? And, um, so yeah, I think it's, that it's they, like that except for there's nothing wrong with jerking off. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not going to hurt you in any way, uh, other than these awful meetings and this religion pumping shame uh-huh. into your mind. So we we had that reiterated to us constantly. So you assume everyone that you haven't seen in a while is shooting up behind a dumpster. And mm. even though we watched people, um, I don't know. It was the one time in my life where I really didn't trust myself. And so uh, the idea that I, this monster that I have crammed into a cage is just getting stronger and stronger and waiting for me to be less vigilant resonated with this idea that I was a danger to myself. Out of control. And it was really my perception of this experience was was temporarily distorted. And I think it was like 2007 when I realized the person with the bad relationship got clean, turned into a great person and became my husband. And everything the alien said about him was true. And it wasn't until a month after my wedding that I had this paradigm shift where I was telling someone like, oh, hey, I used to celebrate 11-11 like it was a holiday. And then in that moment, I used to talk about alien stuff like, oh, I was so high and schizophrenic. I thought all this dumb shit. And the entire reason that I believed that was because I was wrong about this person. Because <clears throat> the aliens were wrong about this person and there was nothing else that, that had been proven wrong that didn't come true. And uh, 
in that moment, I realized like, oh my God, everything they said is true. He is exactly who they said he was going to be. And then all of a sudden, boom, 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 boom. These last, I've been like clean for like two and a half years. And I realized that I wasn't wrong. And all these things that I did out of self-doubt and all these moves that I made and all these, all these, these lines that I tried to color in between all of a sudden, all of these very non-Jessa things that I had pivoted my entire life based on being wrong, based on trusting my gut and being wrong. And I realized that I was right all along. It just didn't look like it in that moment. And things really shifted for me over the course of the, the next couple of years. And I had, uh, I started school to become a hypnotist, not school, but I, you know, I, I was getting certified as a hypnotist. And then we moved to Portland. And when we moved back to Portland, we had history in Portland. And, you know, people who had gotten hurt and stuff and just bad stuff, it just didn't feel wise to have people know we were back in Portland, I guess. And after walking into a few meetings with him and people like calling his name out and stuff, it just didn't feel safe to have, meetings didn't feel safe, I don't know. To, to go back to meetings in places where you've done things didn't feel safe. And for me, I was Criminal already- things, bad things. This, when you say things, you mean like- yeah. You didn't yeah, want there's someone vendettas. you had wronged. Yeah, yeah there's vendettas to and stuff. Because y'all are back in town. It just didn't feel safe, I okay. guess. Um, so is that when you stopped going? So that's, he stopped going almost immediately because of that. And then I stopped going because in Portland, they call on you in meetings rather than you volunteering. And bl- oddly enough, I hate sharing in meetings. I hate sharing. I get like extreme uh, public speaking anxiety. And, but I was already like a kind of an established recovery comedian by that point. And so I would get called on every time because people just thought I would be funny and I'm not funny on the fly. And yeah, uh, give me a stage and a microphone and a spot. Yeah. And I've completely memorized, you know what I mean? Like I just, and so they would call me every single meeting. So it's just, I would get so anxious, so much social anxiety about it that they were just stressing me out. So I stopped going to meetings when I made the decision to stop going to meetings. I cried myself to sleep for nights, for uh, nights, why weeks. I had to face this part of me that was like, you can trust yourself. You're okay. You feel okay. You have not had the desire to use in the years that you've been clean. And uh, there was another part of me that was like, no, you idiot. This is your addiction doing pushups. You, this like self-doubt. And this was like kind of an experience of having to like trust my gut. And you knew, and I'm assuming you knew a lot of people who probably. I did. Slipped up and, and, and relapsed and. Yeah. Died. And, but in that moment I'm like, yeah, but I, I never felt like they felt about drugs or alcohol ever. I never felt that way. My experience was completely different. And then it's like, yeah, everyone thinks their experience is different. You're just looking for the differences, not the similarities. So it's kind of having to face down a programming that I think is also a programming that saves people's lives. If someone comes to me and says they want to get clean, like I take them to the program. I don't take them to the Jessa Reed school of this is what worked for me. I take them to the program. So this is a very difficult, it wasn't like leaving a religion where you could say like this religion is false. It's like, here's this thing that works. I don't need it. It's not what I need. And it was hard. I don't think that's, I think you can say that exact same thing about religion too. That's true. That's uh, true. 
but I mean, I wasn't having some. Like I feel, I feel the same way about uh, Mormonism, where I know people, my family members, where I, the, it works for them. Yeah, and so I just let it work for them, and I just said it didn't work for me. So it's it got. I think I think it did a lot. Religion did a lot for me, but it got to a point where it was unhealthy for me, and so I left. But I, if if it's still healthy for you, and it helps you, then I think you should go to church, man. So I don't think it's that dissimilar. Yeah, I guess. I I mean, I just didn't have like a I've been lied to moment to help me right. like break up. Right, right, you know. Right. Um. The next thing that happened was I was trying to buy a hypnosis business from an established uh, hypnotist. And this is how like... The most... Yeah, that's a very Jessa Reed sentence. Yeah. Yeah. I was trying to get started as a hypnotist. And this was like... uh, I've started a lot of businesses. And I have finished none of them. And I met this woman who was obviously extremely intuitive. And we were talking about hypnosis and the business and everything else. And then I said, I feel like I should tell you something. I'm an addict, which is just was my entire identity at this point. I'm three and a half years in and my entire identity is an addict. I didn't know anyone that didn't know that about me. And it was, it was everything. And she said, but I didn't look like, I mean, you've seen pictures of me. I didn't look like I did meth Mm -hmm. three days after I quit it. And she said, yeah, I know you wear it like a badge. And I, uh, was like, you could, you knew. And she said, yeah, like you're like an, like you, uh, you're broadcasting it. And I didn't know what that, I know what that means now. And then she said, uh, you don't have to identify as something you did in your past. That's not who you are as a person. That's something you did. Those aren't the same thing. And I, what did that feel like? To it, you, ch- it was another huge paradigm shift because my belief system is pay attention to the things you want. Give very little time and energy to things that you don't want. And in that moment, I thought, how counterintuitive it is for me to identify as the one thing I don't want to experience again. And also in that moment started to separate this, this thing that I had experienced from who I was as a person. And I understand the point in identifying as an addict. I get the idea that if you forget you're an addict, you might go back out. You might fool yourself into thinking you can you, use that you're again. strong enough to you're, you're right, right. The whole yeah. the, the idea of it is to remind you of your that you're wired different. Th- that I, I that I can't I can't just party the way that you party. It it'll turn out different for me if I'm an addict. Okay. So I get it. I get it, and I clung to that for some reason. But those weren't my actual experiences. I'm someone who enjoyed a substance and used it for as long as I enjoyed it. And while my life may have looked insane, it was I was never doing anything I didn't want to do. I wanted it to be like that. I wanted it that way. I didn't want, I didn't, the thing that I was trying to escape was this nine to five Truman show looking lie. To me, it was like, that's a lie. I don't know why you're all 
celebrating it. You all hate it. And it was, I, it freaked me the fuck out from the time I was like eight, nine years old. And you start to find out that magic isn't real and stuff. And I was just like, this is it. This is bullshit. This cookie cutter cardboard life you're all living is bullshit. I wanted out. I wanted out of it. And I did that for as long as I wanted to do it. And drugs were a great tool because it gave you access to people that lived like that. You got to see, I got to see things behind the curtain because I was on a substance that kind of takes you into that, like whatever. But I was never doing anything I didn't want to do. The party got away from me because I wanted the party to get away from me. I wanted it. And when I didn't want it, I stopped. And so after that hypnotist lady, I spent three years thinking about that. I stopped calling myself. I stopped, I stopped working it into every conversation that year. And I ordinarily am someone who processes something and changes gears and pivots very fast. But I spent years just thinking about this idea that what if I'm not an addict? What if I'm just someone who did meth because I felt like doing meth and stopped because I felt like stopping? And I know addicts though. I know, I believe there is a disease of addiction. There is a energetically, if nothing else, you can feel, you can feel it. It's a vacuum. What kind of shift did that make for you when you started, if you, if you started seeing yourself as someone who was not an addict? It was extremely pain. It was the, it's the only thing I think I can relate to your loss of identity that came with Mormonism. Losing your identity Mormonism. as an addict? When we did that episode, I wasn't ready to talk about this yet, but I it, I was like, oh, I have had this sensation. Losing my identity as an addict, being afraid that I'm making the wrong decision, uh, having to trust myself when all of this programming is telling me something different, losing what felt like I would lose all of my friends. Yeah, we talked in that episode about losing drug friends when you get clean. Yeah. But you, did you lose recovery friends when you uh, stopped calling yourself an addict or thinking of yourself as that? The thing or were you was, just afraid you were going to lose them? I've kept it very quiet. I did tell Chrissy... And but at this point, I had moved to Portland and hadn't really established recovery friendships in Portland. Okay. And so I already was, uh, and I hung out with people who used to do meth but never did the recovery route. And my best friend, Jason, introduced us. And uh, I don't know if she listens to the podcast, but it, it was perfect timing because. She used to do math if she was clean, but she was clean without the program. And so it was like, cool. But then she ends up relapsing. And uh, so I, I'm in the face of this, like, well, she didn't think she was an addict and da 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 you know? Um, Did you live with that fear that the, you were going? I think that's what I took like two years. It took me, fuck. Was there anything that years. you were ever remotely close to relapsing or... Was it more of an irrational fear based on this programming? It was just an irrational fear of getting too far away from this idea or if I start saying I'm not an addict. There was definitely fear of people thinking that I was um, kidding myself. I was afraid that I was kidding myself. Then I was afraid that people are obviously going to think I'm kidding myself. I thought uh, I hadn't really been exposed to the fact that there are tons of people who get clean 
and from one substance and then go use others because everyone I'd ever seen do that failed. Um, but I just didn't have the desire to use. I didn't have the desire to use. And a lot of people, when I see them doing that, I'm not an addict, they then are fixated on this idea of moderation. And I've shared this on the podcast before. I'm not judging anyone, but I don't consider drinking weekly moderation. It seems excessive to me. It's, drinking weekly? Mm-hmm. I think, oh, you once a week you get drunk, you leave reality once a week. That's a lot to me. I know that that's normal and everyone else does it, but, uh, and so I'm not saying that from like a judging other people, but for, for, I wouldn't consider that for myself moderation. I think that's a lot, but to me leaving, well, I want to get more into my, have you ever drank alcohol since? So, uh, 2012, I decide I'm, I'm officially not an addict. That's how long it took me. It took me because it was 2008 when I met that lady. Uh, and I have a conversation with my parents, my dad, who's in recovery and Jason and I at the same time, like, are like, we're not addicts. And it was a huge deal for me. I want to sit down and tell them that. And as of then I released myself, I had seven years sober, clean, whatever, released myself to be able to do whatever substances I wanted. I'm not an addict. I don't think I ever was an addict. I think I was addicted to the substance. And in seven years, I haven't used because I didn't feel like it. And I don't want to be behold. I, I don't like that I'm saying I can't. Mm-hmm. I don't like that uh, doesn't resonate because I'm doing whatever I want to do. By now, I'm fully like I'm a lot more Jessa, okay. you know. And I think my dad and Christy were the two people that I really gave a fuck what they thought. And they both absolutely thought I was just going to start drinking. And, uh, uh, Christy seemed annoyed. I, I think I ran into her at a Starbucks and kind of dropped that bomb on her. And she seemed kind of annoyed. And then the next time we talked, she was like, you know what? Cause I had a couple years longer clean than she did. And she was like, I don't know where I'm going to be when I get to your point. So I'm not mm-hmm. going to judge it. Like, I hope you don't relapse. Um, yeah, man, everybody, just if I can make a parallel to Mormonism real quick, um, you feel bad about people, not for everyone, but a lot of people I know anyway, you feel bad and you pity people that leave the church. Yeah. And then it's just a couple years later that you do it. You do it too. It's just, yeah. you're, everybody's on that path. And you, I remember a uh, sister and brother-in-law talking to them one day. And we get got into kind of a fight about stuff that I did about like this point, this stuff with people were being excommunicated yeah. in Mormonism. And I was like, this is such bullshit. And they were like, no, uh, God's right. And like, I kind of got offended by what they said. And I think we were whatever. And then a couple years later, uh, I remember it saying to Tabitha that night, like, they'll be they'll they'll change their mind in two years and then it was almost exactly two years later that they were like yeah we're sorry that's so Uh, yeah exactly i thought it was um cool of chrissy to come to that conclusion you know i think she was obviously freaked out that her best friend was gonna go off the rails and there was already some distance between us because i had moved and stuff and i thought the the next conversation that we had, I thought that was like, well, that's a cool way to look at it. You know, yeah. like, I don't know where I'm going to be. Right. I have that conversation and then I ask myself, okay, now you're released from this idea that you're an addict. Do you want to do something? Do you want to drink? And 
there were a couple times that I went out with my sisters where I'm always the sober one. We went to Atlantic City for a weekend and I was like, tonight I might drink. And then when it came time, I thought, uh, I'm going to be dehydrated tomorrow and out on the beach and my body's not going to feel as good as it normally feels and alcohol prematurely ages you and it's bad for you. So uh, not tonight, maybe next time. And that has basically been my, every time I'm like, oh, maybe I'll drink because I think it would be funny just that I haven't, that I haven't been drunk in 20 years that it might be funny. And every single time I think about it, I just equate it with feeling bad the next day. And so I've never done, well, I have. So the summer that I had the conversation and kind of, this was also the summer I decided uh, the first time I wanted an open marriage. I was just kind of having this like, uh, Jessa needs a little bit out of the cage kind of summer right before getting pregnant again. <laughs> and I had the Get conversation cage. and thought, okay, now you're really free. You're really free. You're not an addict. You're allowing yourself to do whatever you want. What do you want to do? And I thought, I'll drink with my sisters because I have been going out. I've never gotten a party with my sisters. They were too young when I was partying. Uh, We're going to Atlantic City. I'll drink with them. And then we went out to the club, which I've been going to clubs and bars and shit with them, you know, forever. And I got there and thought, I don't want to have a hangover tomorrow. I don't want to be dehydrated and in the sun tomorrow, you know, because we're at the beach. And... Every single time that I've ever thought, oh, maybe I'll drink, this will be funny, you know, because I haven't gotten drunk in 20 years. I I don't because I think that same, I don't want to, ew, I don't want to feel gross, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to get nauseous. I don't want to be out of control. I don't want to lose my inhibitions. Uh, what if something crazy happens and uh, my mind isn't sharp? And so I didn't drink. I did think psychedelics that was the only thing the entire time I was sober was like are we calling psychedelics drugs because psychedelics to me are therapy I don't they're just supernatural therapy and I don't what are all the psychedelics acid mushrooms okay I there are other psychedelics that I haven't done I would do DMT if it ever came across my uh plate, yeah but I just these what are all is, is molly or ecstasy count as a psychedelic they don't they don't no and weed's definitely not right i just called uh, molly ecstasy uh ketamine ghb whippets i loved all of those drugs what are whippets whip they're dumb whippets are dumb i think whippets and crack are the same thing i thought whippets was something to do with a with with like whipped cream canisters yeah it's the it's the the gas that goes in those uh-huh and uh you're high for like 30 seconds it's dumb i hate I've done a lot of whippets, but they're dumb. <laughs> but those were all like club drugs, and I loved all those drugs, and I loved ecstasy, and there there are some benefits to ecstasy. I think uh, the idea of ecstasy going along with like marital counseling and stuff makes a lot of sense to me. What? I'm really? pro some of those drugs, yeah. Ecstasy for marital counseling. I think that's, I'm probably jumbling this together, but that that's where it came from was that they were using it in therapy. It makes you so empathetic that I think if you had a relationship in crisis, you could you could maybe fix it. If y'all took ecstasy together took ecstasy and just like and talked each through other. stuff because it, it like Damn. lowers all those defenses and makes you want to connect and stuff. Hold on, I'm calling Tabitha. <laughs> 
Um, That's what we did wrong. More ecstasy. <laughs> uh, Hold on. Listen, babe, hear me out. Okay. Do ecstasy every day for the rest I told, of your life. I said I was never going to ask you to take me back again. Uh, but, but have you thought about ecstasy? And that's the last time I saw my son. <laughs> <laughs> she called she called a judge immediately. Oh. That summer I did mushrooms. 2012 summer? Mhm. And I had a blast. Did you do it with your sisters? I did. <laughs> You're like sisters. I did. We're at Atlantic City. Let's do mushrooms, baby. I no. did mushrooms once with uh, people who probably don't want me to talk about it on the podcast. <laughs> and then and then I thought, well, I don't ever have to do anything again. When you did mushrooms for the first time or second time, were you worried? Uh, did you Were you nervous that it, what if this opens up a door yep. and makes me uh, want to do meth? Or, you know, I, was, I was braced for it. I was braced. I had to, I put all kinds of mental preparation into it. I thought, what if I get super hot, like crazy high that I can't control myself? What if I have the desire? The thing is, is I didn't have connections in Delaware, so it, I didn't have the option, but I was on high alert immediately afterwards to see if anything shifted, if my thinking started to get obsessive about and, using. And did it? No. I did mushrooms, had a blast, and then didn't feel like I needed to do it ever again. It was just fun. And I was like, yeah. The next day I felt great and enjoyed the experience. Felt like a veteran even when I was doing it. Because I was doing it with some people that had never done it before. And just woke up energized, feeling great. No desire to use. No desire to to do even more mushroom. I was just, it was just like, wow, that was fun. And I didn't do anything else for two and a half years. Two and a half years later... I bomb at Big Sky and I bomb so hard that I am traumatized the next day. And I know Ooh. that there's, because I choked. I know the, that feeling. Yeah. The set was so bad that I almost just turned around and walked off stage like halfway through. It was everything in me to get through that set. And I was so terrified nervous the next day that um, a couple things that happened for me. Number one, if I'm anxious, I transpose words. I Right. Um, still do that. If I have social anxiety, if I'm having a socially ang uh, anxious, this part of the reason I always memorize my set as hard as I can because the looser it is, the more likely I am to transpose words, which is why I'm doing it so much now. But um, I also, my voice shakes and cracks and my hands shake. So for the first however many years I did stand up, I didn't even take the mic out of the stand because it would be so, the handshaking would be so visible. And I had gotten, I had conditioned myself out of a lot of these things but i knew i had bombed so hard that i was definitely going to be visibly nervous and i was going to bomb again at which point i would have to jump off a bridge so i and there thought are no bridges in billings there are no bridges no water so a I giant was like, cliff you could have jumped off of i thought i'll do a shot of vodka this was like how i never seemed nervous when i did stand up when i was 21 was i drank so i was like i think i can do one shot and of a lot vodka. of comics do yeah, it, yeah. yeah well, that was a, like why I thought I was never going to do stand-up again was because I was like, no, well, I don't drink now, so I'll never be able to do stand-up. Mm -hmm. And I had to learn how to do it with no help ever. And so I thought I will, I will do a shot of vodka and then I will drink a Red Bull to get rid of the buzz. 
and the shot of vodka should just neutralize that that adrenaline. And I nursed a shot of vodka over the course of an hour before I got on stage and it kept making me kind of tipsy. So I just kept drinking more and more Red Bull. I get up and I murder. I murder and I don't seem nervous at all. I don't feel a buzz by the time, once the adrenaline hits, I the, there's no buzz. And I was braced that night. Like, okay, so when I get off stage, now that I've, now that I've, uh, cross this boundary i'm gonna want to drink i'm gonna want to drink with everyone but the thing is, is i spent they're years, drinking a lot in yeah they're partying their ass off Every, yeah but i spent years learning how to well you probably know what this is like i guess not so i knew how to hang out with comics without drinking i knew how to have fun with a bunch of comedians who were fucked up i no i don't know how i still think that's impossible you I, I hate hanging out with comics that are drunk, and, <laughs> and I'm not. It's bad. Did you hang out? No, nah, I went back to the hotel. You know, <laughs> like good night, everybody. That's I'll try. So I, yeah, like I, uh, I I used to write jokes about being the only sober person and how frustrating it was. But um, comics are one of the few people who don't bug a, me when they're drunk because they're smart and funny enough that it's uh, still fun. Hmm. Until they get like way drunk, but I'm in bed by then. Oh, okay. But um, anyway, I thought I'm probably going to want to drink. The desire to drink is probably we'll going to be presence. And I got off stage and I sat down and thought, do you want to do another shot? And I thought, no, I don't want to feel bad tomorrow. And, but now wow. I had this. Which definitely doesn't sound like an addict. It just doesn't sound yeah. like an addict. Yeah. And, but I now had this trick and this is the point where I realized, this is the festival where I realized that there is value in showcasing. Showcasing is my Achilles heel. Showcasing for those of you that aren't so. comedians. Uh, anything short, any short set, anything under 15 minutes for me is is nerve wracking because that's one story. And my and my stories are so outlandish that if I don't have, if I don't feel like I have the time and the security to build a relationship with the audience, I'm just, it's hard. It's very hard for me. And what I learned at that festival was that I have to go do it anyway. And I also learned that now I have a way to not be nervous because I'm a little bit, the adrenaline hits me and I have a hard time managing the adrenaline when I get on stage anyway. But with a headlining set or a feature set, I can sit up there for a second and calm down and kind of get my bearings. But when you have seven minutes, I don't have time to do that. And so now I'm like, well, now I know I can do a shot of vodka and a Red Bull and kind of hack that mm -hmm. uh that those nerves so did you start doing it for all your sets i started to i reserved it for high pressure sets and so if i was auditioning for something or like in like going in front of someone for industry or something i did it four times i think in the next year and one time it just uh dulled me more than it helped me i felt like it made my mind dull and I never did it again. I just said, uh, I don't, I think I, I think it wasn't a high pressure set. I think it was a showcase that I would have been fine. And I, but now I was using it as a crutch. And by crutch, I mean, I've done it four times in a year. And I thought it didn't help. I was slow. I hadn't eaten or hadn't slept or whatever. Anyway, I decided I was never going to do that again. And so then I was sober again for years. 
And I think this year I started doing psychedelics again. I read a lot about microdosing and I was having a hard time writing. I was having a hard time with my memory and my vocabulary. Usually someone who has a pretty good vocabulary and in jokes, I noticed that I wasn't like, it wasn't as sharp as I used to be. And I had read a lot about microdosing and this idea where you're just doing a tiny, tiny, tiny minuscule amount of psychedelics. I'm so incredibly pro psychedelics and always have been like, that was something where that was something I could never reconcile when I was sober even it was just like, yeah, I guess I have to give that up. But it's something that I think is so good for you if you understand how to use it. And uh, now why is this been so hard for you to say? Sorry, I feel like I have done like 99% of the talking on this uh, thing. I, there's a lot. Here's why it's been very hard for me to say. Uh, it's a loss of identity. In the, in the time, if you know me personally, you probably already know this because I'm open about it to people who I know personally. I love doing recovery comedy. And when I made the decision to stop calling myself uh, an addict, I stopped celebrating a clean date way before that, but I stopped even acknowledging it. Does everybody celebrate their clean day? Yeah, it's a big deal. They talk about it. They yeah. post it on Facebook and stuff. You've never seen me post anything about it on Facebook. I have gotten backed into a corner. Well, very early on, I started having experiences where I would share this, that I don't think I'm an addict. And here's this. And I've had multiple experiences where friends have used that as an excuse to relapse. And I know that that's not my shit. I know that's not my problem. I know they were going to relapse anyway, but I've had multiple conversations where I've said the things that I just said to you, shared the journey that I just shared with you. And the person on the other end said, yeah, I mean, I don't think I'm an addict. And then I have to have this awkward, like, no, you're definitely an addict. Like, <laughs> look no, at it's you. just me. That's yeah. Special. And then I feel like an arrogant piece of shit. And I'm not saying that based on, I'm just saying it by the way your eyes lit up when I when I said this and and the glimpse of hope that you might get to shoot up again popped into you. You know what I mean? Like I don't I the amount of disinterest in using for me is I spent years coming to the conclusion that I wasn't an addict because I was in no hurry to and I'm in a hurry to do everything. But I was in no hurry to change that because I was in no hurry to use. I just don't feel like it. I don't care about it. And uh, I've had three that I can think of right now. Uh, friends within a week of having this conversation with me tell me that they're now drinking socially or drinking in moderation. And I have been like, yeah, I don't know. If you're obsessed with the idea of moderation, you're probably an addict. If you're obsessed with the idea of being able to do things in moderation, you're probably an addict. Also, we just watched Adam Conover do a set in a dark, abandoned parking lot. Resonated so much the stuff that he was saying. Where he was talking about like as uh, the, as long as you just say the word moderation, yeah, then then you're fine and you're not an alcoholic. Yeah, but you can do all kinds of terrible stuff in moderation. And yeah, about it's his set. Just, yeah, but he talked a lot about that. Yeah, and I. I think that about what we consider to be normal, non-addicted people. 
I think alcohol especially. Right, right, which is what he he was saying that like he lived for so long uh convinced that he convincing himself that he wasn't an alcoholic because uh he just did it in moderation. Yeah, but maybe because you're not pissing the bed or whatever. But booze is gross. I don't like. I'm I'm anti alcohol. I'm just anti alcohol. I just think there's uh, weed. I have mixed feelings about because I don't have a good time on it. But I watch people who otherwise would have to be on psych meds be able to medicate themselves with something that they don't have to go to a doctor for and they're able to find their own chemical balance and they it adds happiness for some people it makes them introspective it makes them uh get into existential shit so i'm like pretty pro weed it's medicine for sure i'm pretty pro weed alcohol brings nothing to the table there's not a person in the world who if they're being honest with themselves can say that alcohol is adding something good to your life and it's tearing your body up i'm anti i'm Okay, I guess a, a glass of wine might help with some shit or fucking beer helps you make more breast milk. Uh, <laughs> other than that, I'm just pretty anti-alcohol. Beer helps period. you make more breast milk? Yeah, you can drink like a beer a day and it helps you uh, with your supply. I but guess the, that's a good use. Uh, but then is your breast milk alcoholic? No, it's a low enough uh, okay. amount. Um, okay, so I've had friends then say I am using in moderation. And it's fine. It's been fine. It's been fine. I'm like, well, it's been six days. I had to be six months on the other side of doing mushrooms to say, okay, yeah, I guess that was fine. You know, I guess there were, there was no repercussions from that. I just think to make the call that you haven't uh, made a self-destructive decision in six days, in six days is bananas. Also, how many times have you drank? You've drank four, you've gotten drunk four times in the last week you're not moderating shit it's not social drinking just because there's other people there you know um and then they all shoot dope and uh i just lost friends of yours yeah and it just happened again so i have been talking with a friend that you had told that you weren't an addict yep i know that i'm not responsible for those people I also made a career out of doing recovery comedy for a long time, and I tried to back out of it. It's my favorite comedy to do. They are my favorite audiences. It's my favorite kind of material. Why? I've, I've had love about them. The audience, dude, I mean, sober audiences. Not to shit on alcohol some more, but drinking and going to comedy shows is weird. If you really think about it, here is something that is. It's not music, where you can, where you. You don't have to concentrate on music. You can just feel the music. You can be wasted and feel the music. Comedy is literally processing information. What a weird thing to get intoxicated and then go try to do. That's why drunk people are fucking awful audiences because they're incapable of processing everything that you say. I know it seems. So my, my experience with sober audiences is, is uptight audiences yeah that are, god i want to take you to do a recovery suck. show but i'm never going to get to do another one after this podcast. <laughs> um but uh yeah i'm like i i know what you mean when people get too drunk then they're awful but when i first got to perform for people that were drunk i was like this is so much better they laugh so much harder they you know like i, I uh you think drunk audiences are better than humor you audiences is the recovery show like a humor you audience yes 
eager is what I call eager. a human you audience. But that's I feel like they're eager, they're excited and stuff because they they haven't come uh, in a long time. <laughs> so they're just like ah, they're like they're desperate to, for some sort of uh, near orgasmic uh, experience. So they just laugh extra hard to to try to to taste that euphoria that they are denying themselves. But I did I never I ne- well, like when I think of like. Uh, a sober audience. I don't think of humor you. I think of uh, like are these fucking corporate? dry bars. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, well that's just, a, it's different. That's it's just, just those are awful people. <laughs> um, you're doing comedy for awful people. But uh, I think yeah, I haven't thought about that in a while. But you're that you make a great point. It is about pro. I think it lowers inhibitions and that that can make you laugh easier and quicker. Um, but, uh, there is the element of like the drunk audience that's everything's about them because you're so self-centered when you're drunk. Yeah. Uh, there's the, the people that talk too loud because they're drunk, the people that don't get jokes because they're drunk <laughs> because they, they have to sit and think and they're like, what? what you know, tags that are brilliant that, you know, are brilliant that never work or they work like once every great once in a while but you know that they're brilliant so they work at recovery shows They work at recovery shows because they hear every word and they process every word but i'm going to just say that everyone that uh dry bars audience and uh demographic are just bad people but um we don't like to make sweeping generalizations here on mormon except for about dry i will make uh this is one one place i know i'm never gonna work so i can just (laughs) shit freely all over them um People who do drink not drinking are awful. Like, uh, I remember we did Augie Smith's roast in 2009 and how awful it was to be around people who are used to drinking. Something happened, the bar wasn't open yet or something. So we had to have this like hour of everyone being sober who only know how to socialize intoxicated Mm -hmm. because that's what we do in this society is get intoxicated before we do fucking everything and so uh it creates people have lost the ability never wants to talk shit about us losing the ability to socialize because of social media but these are the same people that have to have three beers in order to hang out with their friends but whatever um uh that's a different you want those people to be lubricated or whatever but um Sober yeah, audience. Cool thing about Mormons can have fun without drinking because they know they how to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So you're now that you have achieved a certain level of fame, you have more fans, more followers, and you achieved it talking about drinking your own pee. You've got a lot of fans that have talked to you about their recovery, their sobriety. And people that have like, I've seen the fan mail that you get that, that thank you for meth P on, on this is not happening. And you know, then they tell you about their recovery story. Is that what you've been worried? Have you been worried about, uh, like you've told a few friends and you kept it pretty quiet. And even in the few people you've told, you've seen, uh, people take it as an excuse to relapse themselves. Have you been worried? Are you worried about people that listen to this podcast? Yes. Relapsing. Yep. This has been the, um, for, well, tell them not to. Yeah. Don't relapse guys. Uh, for 2012 and then, uh, so I don't know how like six years. Um, 
I kind of got away from recovery shows. Someone took me as a feature to one and then I went back and headlined that and it was home to me. Like that's my community. It'd be like going back. This is another thing I very much relate to you. I don't believe I have the disease of addiction, but there is a huge part of me that relates to addicts that feels like I'm an addict uh, in that I've, I've had the same life experience as them. And when I get around people in recovery, it's this, this full acceptance to where when I talk about shooting up in my neck with toilet water, whatever, there's nothing's too outlandish. I get to fully be myself because I've shared the same experience with these people. And so they like in that respect, I am one of them and I, and I never feel more comfortable. Like that's my church. Like that's my group of people, how you still identify as a Mormon, even though you've left the, the church. This is something that I also relate to. I love doing comedy for them. I love, uh, talking to them, hanging out with them at conventions. I stopped going after those gigs because I felt like I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Would they still want me to do this if they knew I wasn't active in recovery? Is it dishonest? I I am I'm providing entertainment for them, but uh, is it under false pretenses? Am I a liar? Like it's something that stressed me out. So I've done like three recovery shows in the last few years, um, and I it bothered me a lot, like a lot. I thought about it all the time. Then meth piss comes out and something that I didn't intend was to then become this involuntary recovery hero again. I say that it was, uh, I quit meth 12 years ago. I, everyone just assumes I'm in recovery and that um, it's a weird conversation because I do consider myself sober. I consider myself sober compared to the rest of the world, I guess. I don't drink, I don't smoke pot, and I still behave as a person who is different from the people I'm around. If that makes sense, you know? Yeah. The only thing you do is a tiny bit of psychedelics. I do psychedelics, which is like my own thing. It's not... um, I don't like when I'm out at a bar and someone's like, can I buy you a drink? I say I'm so like, no, I don't drink. I'm Mm -hmm. sober, you know, whatever. Anyway, so it's just this weird having to create my own identity, which is usually great for me. It's usually right up my alley, but this has been something where I feel like um, dishonest on afraid, afraid to share it and then have a bunch of people say, yeah, me too, and then, and then be wrong. Afraid to share it and be like, I'm not an addict, but you are. And seem like a prick. And seem like a prick. Yeah, because I don't don't feel that way. Um, Do you think, will people be mad at you? Some people like, might be. Like I, you that just said, you just like said you're okay. never going to do these shows again after this podcast come out. Ha, ha, ha. But like for real, would they not let you do those shows anymore? Like no one. It's would. weird because there are uh, non-addicts, never been an addict, currently drinks and smokes pot and whatever people who get hired to do recovery shows. But I don't know what the feelings. Uh, yeah, man. That's how when like at uh, we use dry bar as an example. Yeah, you have non-Mormons that come uh, uh, and do jokes there. Mo- I mean, most of the slate of comedians there, uh, and there are comics that tell jokes about drinking and stuff. Uh, but I got a way different reaction 
when I told my jokes about how I used to be Mormon and now right. I started drinking. Ooh, ooh, did that suck the ear out of the room? Like yeah. you could tell a, jo- a comic can tell jokes about uh, you know alcohol. I, I like to drink it, but I had you know whatever, and they they'll laugh along with it. But when it when you used to be one of them and now you're not, it's uh, they they take it. Mormons take it pretty personally. So I can see. I could see that happening, yeah. And I guess they're within their rights because you're you're making a statement about their beliefs rather than someone who is, has never been. I don't know. For me, I'm I'm not trying to make a statement about their belief. I try to keep it personal, individual, and I think that's what you're trying to do. You're you aren't trying to say that the steps are bad or that they're wrong. They you're just trying from what it sounds from what i've heard sounds like you're trying to say this is my truth this is what i found out you know you've tried to do the best thing for yourself and keep your uh, health and in, in, in mind and all these things you haven't done anything crazy or anything i think another huge fear is just about the program itself and i it has saved so many people's lives that i know like i said it's where i take people when they because another type of conversation I've had when I've shared this with people is they're like, yeah, fuck the program. Like everybody thinks the program is, you know, like it's, it's a cult and everything else. And I'm like, no, uh, those aren't my feelings, man. There are a lot of, there are a lot of people whose lives that say I have a shit ton of friends in those rooms and I, it's where I take people. Like if you, if someone comes to me and says like, I need help, I, I do go to meetings to take other people to meetings and it just feels like I don't know how to not feel like a prick being like, you need this. I don't, you know, I just, it just feels douchey every direction. The part where people will be mad at me, I think I don't care about. Um, I would, it would make me sad. I do, I do love my recovery fans. It would be sad if they stopped being my fans, I guess, you know, if they stopped uh, liking my comedy or following me on the, you know, I I do still feel like that's a family of mine and I uh just wasn't ever going to say anything. I just feel like I just felt like I don't need to say anything and then I got this podcast where I'm super candid and honest and now I feel like well now I'm hiding a giant part of my truth, which has been my, because I get, now I get tons of questions about addiction and I just dodged this subject where before when I was dodging it, I was like, well, if I stop doing recovery shows for the most part, I've gotten cornered a couple times where people were like, uh, someone from the stage at a recovery show that I was about to do asked me for my clean date. And it's like, I'm not clean by your standards. You know what I mean? I'm not clean by this program standards. Yeah. But you I've, don't want to shout that out. Yeah. And, you, so you just and have make to, the fucking show weird. But now I'm shouting out something that's not true. And now I'm going to obsess over this because this kind of stuff bothers me, you know. And I, I am someone who is, uh, I consider myself to be very honest. I'm not saying I'm never self-deceive, but I'm also someone that if I do self-deceive and catch it, I will come back and tell you like, hey, the, uh, my intentions were not what I said they were, whatever. Um but on black and white stuff, I'm someone who's very honest. And since Meth Piss came out and I ended up with a, a bunch of addicted fans 
and they're they're writing me and telling me i do think what i brought to the table with meth piss was I, i'll gladly go out and talk about my experience and help destigmatize some of these things and these are things i'm very passionate about i'm very passionate about drug related uh addiction related causes and stuff but um i'm i'm not an addict I'm not, I don't believe myself to be an addict. I haven't believed myself to be an addict for a long time. I sometimes do psychedelics. If I ever get the desire to drink or smoke pot, I'm going to. I have been given a million opportunities and I don't do it because I don't feel like doing it. And I am sorry I didn't say that a long time ago on the podcast. It's uh, It's something that has been weighing on me and I, things just started to line up very recently where it became obvious that it's time to have this conversation. I have also gotten fan mail because I said recently on a podcast that I didn't want to talk about my experience with addiction. And I did get fan mail from people who are like, I don't, please have this conversation. Please talk about your individual experience because I'm only hearing this one voice and I, I need to hear something different. And so I'm hoping that this helps. But I uh, also just lost a friend. We had the, this conversation and I thought we were safe having this conversation and he was going to go out no matter what. I have to remember that. But I was just about to record this podcast. And before I recorded this podcast, I wanted to have a conversation with a few addicts and be like, here's the deal. I need to, ha I need to say this on this podcast. And then he went out Um. I don't want that to happen. And uh, I don't want anyone to think that I'm shitting on the program. And uh, yeah, I don't, I don't want to lose friendships with people who are, I guess, you know, I'm uh, officially leaving my church. And mm. um, I've been afraid of that. I would like to stay. I related so much to you saying like, that's your family. And I remember thinking like, it wouldn't matter if I, if I left, if it wasn't right for me and I just leave, they'll all still love me. Right. And then finding out that they did not and being yeah. really hurt by it and going, Oh no, but you guys, and you know, and I talked about being in those in between worlds, you know, but, uh, I hope that that I'm sure that some people will, you know, but that's, it's the same thing as the people that use is you have to just remind yourself that it's nothing to do with you maybe that's triggering for them and they have to they have to cast you aside in order to stay in or something yeah and i but i hope that i hope that that doesn't happen i think that it's the program's about being honest and that's what you're trying to do you're trying to be honest how does it do you feel any better i know we haven't published it yet and i'm sure the week that this <laughs> that, that this is the episode that's due out uh we'll have several nervous conversations about it but uh yeah maybe i should ask you then how it feels afterwards yeah we'll do a i feel up. right now i feel like a weight lifted really already yeah um just this has been you know how much i've been obsessively talking about this for the last few months it's just uh felt like I was living a lie, you know, I just wasn't saying anything. And I do have that. Sometimes I call myself an addict 
when I when we're talking on the podcast and I'm I'm like what well, uh, us addicts or whatever you know, mm-hmm. um, I really relate to the part where you're like yeah I mean I don't believe that it's true but, I'll call but I'm a Mormon. Mormon yeah yeah and I yeah. feel that way like if I have a tribe it's them you know I relate to all of the life experience I just don't think I have the obsessive need to use. And I, I, I feel, I also felt like a liar in it because people congratulate you for not doing it, which is funny anyway. But like also, uh, it's just because I didn't want to. It's weird that you're congratulating me like I had some feat of discipline where it's just mm-hmm. like, oh, if I wanted to, I would. If I wanted to do it, I would. I just don't want to. And, um, and then obviously, yeah, like I'm not, I'm not living, a, like I'm not sober by recovery standards. You know, I would have to start that clean date over every time I microdose mushrooms. So, hmm. yeah, I think I said everything. That's that good. I wanted to say, yeah, thanks for letting me share. We'd like to thank Jessa for sharing today. And we'll catch you guys next time on Mormon in the Meth Head. If you put a Mormon and a Meth Head together, this is what they sound like. Listen to the